Brother, that was smooth, wasn't it? That was Fred Spielman, by the way. Wow. I'm intimidated now to preach after that wonderful reading and prayer. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, not Luke, I'm sorry. Um, the latest planning center did have this. Matthew 26, it's going to be... Uh, I don't know if you can get up quick enough, Patty. If not, that's okay. It's going to be an ESV version. I switched it over to Matthew because I think Matthew has more to say about Gethsemane than Mark or Luke. And John, by the way, in the Gospel of John does not address specifically Gethsemane, but the synoptics do. Let's read, if you would, listen up as we read verse 20, uh, 36, excuse me. Chapter 26, verse 36 and following. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Yeah. I want to ask you, think about your own life and ask yourself this question. What has been the hardest thing that you have ever dealt with in your life? Something that was coming up on your calendar, something that was causing you to have great anxiety and fear. Just think for a minute. What would that have been for you personally? Okay. This story is going to have to make this observation. I've had it both. Very critical. Not knowing even whether to be sane or not afterwards. Maybe you have some incident in your life that makes you wonder, boy, what? I remember those days. I remember what that was like. Probably the poorest example I could give about myself was I dreaded when the second half of the month of August came up when I had to go to preseason football. It was horrific. Um, my coaches were, were boot camp kings. They were the top of the line. They knew how to really drill you. Uh, and it was, it was horrible. It was gruesome. The pain in the ones that were in the best of shape could hardly endure all that went through 
in preparation so that we would be the best team and that we would be well-trained, we would be in, in fine fitness of shape. But I just dreaded after a nice summer going to the beach and playing ball in the parks and doing all these recreational things in the back of my mind, I'm counting the days down when I got to step into the camp and then get ready for the upcoming preseason football drills that were gruesome. Well, that's a very poor example, but it's to me personally, if you knew how dreadful they were, you would probably sympathize more with me. But you likely have had something in your life that has caused you too to have a lot of anxiety about something. Maybe something that's even coming up in the near future. And I'm not talking about everyday kind of situations or every year type of situations, but one that would be extremely intense. Well, that's what we're talking about now when we think of the Lord Jesus as we've been trying to sort of track His trail down in the last week. And we began not with the triumphant entry. Well, actually we did the triumphant entry. And then we went to the anointing of the body for burial. And here we are at Gethsemane today. Friday we're going to Golgotha and next Sunday we're going to go to glory following Jesus. So here we are at Gethsemane before he goes to Golgotha and then before he goes to glory. The scripture tells us that before honor comes, humility must occur. And this is the lowest place that any human being could be put to. And that would be a crucifixion. And I'm not going to go into the details of it. I'm sure our brother Pat will lay that out for us on Friday. Most of us in this room have some idea of what a crucifixion would look like. Matter of fact, I was listening to a broadcast, a podcast, I should say. Where'd my clicker go? Oh, here it is. Um, Can you get that extra one that I had sent to you? Um, This is a picture from a book that just came out. This is on the book cover. And you might ask, why am I showing this? Because the author of the book, a lady named Eugenia Constantino, she's a Greek theologian, uh, PhD and all that, wrote this book. She's a Greek Orthodox Christian. Um, I'm not recommending the book, by the way. But one thing she did say uh, about the book was the cover picture that she specifically chose this. This is a typical icon of the Orthodox Church uh, with a specific position, particularly of the face of Jesus as he is going through the sufferings of the cross. And the author was trying to highlight the point here that Jesus in this scene as depicted by an iconographer who are supposedly they're very inspired individuals who, who are able to draw such pictures as this in other holy ones, depict Jesus unlike the Western church would depict Jesus in his crucifixion. The difference she was trying to say that Jesus here is passive, that he is, he's, she used the word that he's at peace uh, on the cross, which to me sounds extremely contradictory to everything that the cross entailed from Gethsemane to when he was able to say it is finished. This is not an accurate portrayal. It tells us in the book of Hebrews, it says that he endured the cross despising, despising the shame. 
Jesus didn't just walk up to the hill of Golgotha. This was not like, oh yeah, now it's time I've got to go and do this thing. Absolutely the opposite of this. This is the drama that has reached a peak in the heart of Jesus right now. He is falling on his face. He is very sorrowful. He is sore amazed, the King James Version says. He was in agony. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Listen to the way you Martin, in his book, tells us to think about this transaction, as he puts it this way. The transaction of which this ever-memorable garden now becomes the scene is, with the exception of our Lord's actual crucifixion, perhaps the most awful and solemnizing which even the Scriptures of God contain. How can we approach the consideration of it with sufficient reverence? How can we deeply enough affected with the insight which it gives us into the sorrow of the blessed Redeemer's soul? How shall we not feel and own our utter helplessness to speak or think of this scene in a manner befitting an amazing and affecting disclosure? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured in the place of the olive press. By the way, that's the meaning of the word Gethsemane. It means olive press. When he was crushed beneath the upper and the nether millstone of mental suffering and hellish malice, Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. Just think of that. There was no one in attendance. There was no one to take notes. There was no scribe. There was no ear that was listening to Jesus' prayer. He was isolated. He was a stone's cast away from the three special apostles that he invited to accompany him. How is it that we have a record of it? It obviously is severely important for us to understand what was transpiring, what words were being uttered when Jesus was in this lonely, isolated location called Gethsemane and offering up a prayer. We read several times throughout Jesus' life that he went up on the mount or he went apart to pray. On one occasion at least, it says he prayed all night. It doesn't give us any record of what he said in those prayer times. But here in this episode, the prayer of Jesus is uttered and recorded so that we could hear those echoes in our lifetime. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. Spurgeon says, As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you... Put your shoes off from your feet, for the place whereon we stand is holy ground. I hope we can get there this morning, this afternoon. Listen to the deep groanings of the man of sorrows like we were singing. Our brother was leading us, man of sorrows, what a name. Here we see the sorrows of Jesus highlighted, unlike any other place. The deep groanings of the man of sorrows. Hear the groanings of the many waters which strove to quench the love of the great husband to our souls. 
the sin bearer must be entirely immersed in woe. He stands before us peerless in misery. None are molested by the powers of evil as he was, as if the powers of hell had given commandment to their legions. Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king himself. Spurgeon, by the way, happened to believe that when Jesus, remember, was tempted for 40 days by the devil, and at the conclusion of that, after Jesus said, quote, in the book of Deuteronomy three separate times, it says that the devil departed from him for a season. Spurgeon believes that it was on this occasion that the devil actually came back to Jesus in tempting him in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll leave that for your own thought and meditation. Our Lord had a very clear view of all the shame and the suffering of His crucifixion. You wouldn't want to know how you're going to go through pain or suffering. You're hoping you can block it out of your mind. You hope that the reality of what's going to take place doesn't fix itself upon you. Otherwise, it would cause tremendous agony. The agony was but one of the first drops of the tremendous shower which discharged itself upon his head. He foresaw the speedy coming of the traitor disciple, the seizure by the officers, the mock trials before the Sanhedrin, and Pilate and Herod, the scourging and the buffeting, the crown of thorns, the shame, the spittings. All these rose up before his mind. No wonder he was called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What other religious leader in human history would have been put through this kind of agony and pain? And yet, brothers and sisters, we're reading about our, your, my personal Lord and Savior. The shadow of the cross was looming on the mind of Christ. The clock is winding down. The hour has come. Just think of it. This crucifixion was decreed in eternity past. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The noise of the busy streets of Jerusalem were trafficked with Passover lambs who were being transported for their being slain. The handwriting was on the wall. The little cloud like a man's hand was on the horizon. The waters of Jordan were overflowing the banks. The high priest was about to step in and stem the tide. The thunders of Mount Sinai were becoming and booming in the distance. Prepared to unleash their power on the substitute for law-breaking. The cup of the Amorites was topped off and the bitter dregs were needing to be consumed by the Creator. The Savior wasn't asleep, but on deck, feeling the mounting gusts of wind that were about to reach its zenith. There was no room, excuse me, there was no ram caught in the thickets But the words, God will provide himself a lamb, 
were echoing in Jesus' ears. The footsteps of Satan were approaching to bruise his heel. The wrath of God that fell on the world of Noah's in the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment on the angels that sinned was about to fall on the lovely, beloved, only begotten Son of the Holy God. When Jesus went to Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, and I think I can show you a picture. Um, for a screen. Here we go. One more. Here is a, a picture of... Right now, this is Gethsemane. Uh, this would be the area where Jesus would have been kneeling and praying. Uh, show the next picture, could you, Patty? Uh, just so you get an idea. Actually, this is me in 2013. I went on a trip there. But uh, this, is, this is on the Mount of Olives. I couldn't find a better one, sad to say. Uh, and his finger is being pointed to you, so look up. And l- Here it is, the Mount of Olives. And right about in this area, down below, would have been Gethsemane. And why I'm bringing this picture to your attention is because what was up here would have been the scene of the crucifixion. We know this to be modern-day Jerusalem and and the circumference of it is pretty much the way it would have been in ancient Jerusalem. So just think that Jesus was praying in this location within yards, hundreds of yards from where he would actually be nailed to the tree. So when he went down the Mount of Olives, it says that he crossed over, John chapter 19 tells us, he crossed over the brook Kidron. It's believed that that Kidron brook is where the blood from the animals that were being slain in the temple actually flowed into and through and down. Just think that Jesus had to cross over that brook to go to the place of prayer. To pray about the blood that He was going to shed as the Lamb of God once for all for the sins of His people. What must have gone through his mind as he saw the floods of blood that were flowing right beneath his feet and before his eyes? Obviously, the tension was building. We can ask the question, was Jesus having second thoughts? Why would he even pray such a prayer? I've been baffled by it for years still don't claim to know the answer to it either. How could Jesus possibly pray, Father, take this cup away from me? What was in the cup? Let's stop and think for a minute. Jesus is describing what He is about to endure as a cup to drink. He had said before, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father hath given me to drink? What was in that cup? Jesus was looking into the depths of the cup, the width of the cup, the size of the cup, the height of the liquid in the cup. Father, if it be possible, take away this cup from me. Brothers and sisters, we cannot engage into the sentiment of Christ at those moments. 
But let's try to, in a sense, go back there and be at one of the apostles that did draw near and did hear this cry and did see him sweat as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. We have to say, oh, how he loved me. Jesus, you could have turned back. You could have gone the other way. You could have said, this is too difficult for me. This is an, this is an amazing event that is unexplainable. I can't go through with this. You know, the high priest had on his shoulders, shoulder pieces that had the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And also in the breastplate, the high priest had the names of the children of Israel. Well, our great high priest, as he's about to drink the cup and think about what laid ahead of him, he was bearing on his shoulders and in his heart your name and my name. Oh, how he loved you. Oh, how he loved me. If this doesn't move our heart, brothers and sisters, I don't know what can. We're getting to the very inside of God the Son when we hear these cries ooze from his inner being in the distress that he was enduring. How then can we answer this this question, was Jesus having second thoughts? Was he wrestling with the Father to change the preordained decree? Was he scared because of the realities of crucifixion, torture, and wrath-bearing forsakenness, knowing full well that it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God, the God who is a consuming fire. He despised the shame. Was there a Houdini possibility here that he could get out of this pre-planned, ordained crucifixion? Let's answer the question by looking at the words of the Lord himself found in Matthew 16.21. Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus said that. John 12.32 and 3. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me, This he said, signifying what death he should die. It seems unalterable, does it not, to you? Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Was that not to be... Fulfilled? Wasn't that to be anticipated? Wasn't that the route that Jesus would have to have gone to fulfill these prophecies? Would it not be said that after his, after he, a soldier pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water instead of breaking his leg so that the scripture could be fulfilled, that not one bone of his body would be broken? And many more other Old Testament passages that were prophesying Words like Jesus says, the Scriptures cannot be broken. And it seems as if Jesus in Gethsemane is saying, is it possible that they could be? What else did Jesus say? John twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled. This is before Gethsemane. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. It almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But interestingly, John does not record Gethsemane like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. But John records Jesus as saying, Father, save me from this hour. Sounds very similar to Gethsemane language. For this cause came I unto this hour. Jesus said over and over in the Gospel of John, Mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. They tried to push him over the brow of the hill. They tried to attempt to stone him. He must die the death of crucifixion. John 18.11 Then said Jesus to Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheep. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. And he says, here, shall I not drink it? Boy, hard to understand, isn't it? John eleven forty two and 3, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, this is at Lazarus' tomb, by the way, when he's about to say, Lazarus, come forth. He had prayed and he says, his Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Now, why did I select this passage? Because Jesus says, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. Jesus is praying to the Father. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. I have used this portion of Scripture of Gethsemane because people have a difficult time uh, understanding how can man have a will to choose salvation, it seems at times, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and, and come unto me all you that labor and I'll give you rest and so on. There's the will of man active. Seems as if there's potential there to be able to respond. Yet at the same time, we know that no one can come to the Father except they be drawn. No man can come to the Son except the Father draws him. You see that sort of sovereignty of God and man's responsibility? How difficult it is to tie the two knots of those truths together. Here's another example of trying to tie two truths together. But can we find an answer in this? This is something that dawned on me, and I can't say that I've read it, and if I haven't read it, uh, it's probably not credible, and I wouldn't necessarily hang my hat on what I'm about to say. But this is something that I thought about as I've been meditating on it, and I must say, Gethsemane, to me, is one of the most moving places about Jesus in the Word of God. It moves my heart. I love to think of Gethsemane. I love to think not because of what Jesus went through in his agonizing prayer, but because of the reality of what Jesus was going to do at the cross. In that picture where it was portrayed the crucifixion that gave an impression that the crucifixion was some sort of like, okay, I'm ready to endure and I, and I will very peacefully. And Jesus didn't, I wouldn't say, he's not kicking against the pricks when he's going to go to the cross. And when he's led as a lamb, the Bible said, he's led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. He didn't fight against it. He didn't try to uh, retaliate or to resist it. Mine hour has come. 
He could even kiss Judas Iscariot and say, here I am, take me. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they went backwards and fell to the ground. That should have been enough for them to know that they're in the presence of the great I am. And they should have been driven, they were driven back, and they fell to the ground, I think, in a posture with their face forward, just like people will do in the end, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was a moment of flash there where they had to respect the Lord of glory and bow their knee before Him, and that didn't make a difference. They still uh, apprehend Him and bring Him into trial down the road. Jesus is praying. He prayed many times before. We only have just a snippet of his prayer. And undoubtedly it wasn't all that long. He prayed three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. Showed the intensity of this prayer request. It also shows us what was going on in the inward parts of the Lord Jesus. And that's something that should move us. When we think that he would love us this much that he would agonize over going to the crucifix, to be nailed to a tree, to have the crown of thorns. But more than all of that, it was to have the wrath of God come down upon him and to suffer shamefully. The King of kings and Lord of lords is nailed like a criminal to the cross. All this was right before the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus. He had foreknowledge. He knew exactly what was going to take place. It tells us that he despised the shame. Yet at the same time, he did not open his mouth. Getting back to my point, how do we reconcile this? What do we think of this scene that seems so baffling? How could Jesus pray these words that seem so contradictory to everything that he had said? He says, for this cause came I unto this hour. Eternity was waiting for this hour. The hour had arrived. Preseason football nearby. Nothing compared. Nothing, nobody, nowhere can compare to what it would be like for the Lord Jesus to anticipate going to the cross. He's God in the flesh. He's 100% God on His knees, crying and weeping. He fell to the ground. The Creator is bending His knee on the earth that He created, asking God, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. It's been said rightfully that this highlights more than any other place possibly the humanity of the Lord Jesus. How could He go to the cross without any anxiety over what was going to happen? That would be insensitive. He would not be human, if you will, to have the sort of stamina to be able to go without any sort of reflection, without any shrinking back is the word that's often used. He was shrinking back, rightfully so. hate to use the example, but like when an abortion is created in the womb of, of, a, of a woman, when, when that gadget goes in the interior, the baby naturally backs off. The Lord is thinking ahead of what was going to take place in the suffering that He would endure as a human being on the earth, though God in the flesh at the same time. It's, it's unexplainable. 
Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus, it was actually after he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you hear me and that you hear me always. But you know, there is no voice of the Father in response to the prayer. I never thought of that. It's almost maybe wrongly thought of as a prayer in in the sense that we do, but it was almost like a meditational period for Jesus to review the cross in His own heart and mind. Thinking of the realities of what was ahead for Him. He's letting out His innermost human feelings about being crucified and becoming made sin for us and having the judgment of God for sin poured out on Him. The hymn writer put it this way, Hark, what sounds of bitter weeping from your lonesome garden sweep. Tis the Lord His vigil keeping while His followers sink in sleep. He is speaking to His Father, tasting deep that bitter cup, yet He takes it willing rather for our sakes to drink it up. The cup. The cup of trembling. A cup, if you remember, in the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah was to bring to the nations. Cup. The, this type of cup was a cup of, of trembling. A, a cup for fear. A, a cup that, when consumed, would create a tremendous reaction. Jesus is pleading that the cup be removed. Aren't you glad? Aren't we glad? Can we not say amen? Can we not glory in God? Can we not say hallelujah when Jesus concludes his prayer request? As if he's worked it out in his own soul with a conclusion, not my will, not my human will, not my desire to avoid going and being an object of wrath before you are holy God. No voice from heaven. No response from above. No no spirit descending. No voice. This is my beloved son. No transfiguration. The conclusion is reached in Jesus' own soul. Though it was a prayer request, it was something that he was internally meditating on, contemplating, agonizing over, and can conclude by saying, Not my will, but thine be done. Then he gets up and tells his sleepy disciples, get up, the time has come. I've dealt with it. I've come to my own personal um, conclusions of the matter in, in my humanity. Not that he would explain it to them. They would not have understood it. Had no idea even what was ahead of him and what was after the crucifixion for that matter. But only Jesus. He was so alone. His acquaintances had to stand afar off. They couldn't tolerate the crucifixion, but no one would have been able to understand Jesus' prayer. And even we have a, such a difficult time. It's appropriate that we do to think of Jesus agonizing, who in the days of His flesh offered up strong crying and tears. This is an example of strong crying and tears. I don't know if you've ever had moments in your prayer life where you have been intense. You are yelling, you are screaming, you are pleading, you are hoping, you are knocking the door of heaven down, saying, Lord, hear me. This is critical, this is important. Jesus is there knocking. 
He's there pleading. He's there with all of the anxieties that could possibly accompany what he was going to confront at the cross. And in his humanity could rightfully say, take the cup away from me. But as deity reigns and as the truth of what he had to endure reaches its surface, not my will, not my will as a human being, but thy will be done. It's almost as if he could say, Father, I don't have to say any more. I've said it. Not that he had to convince himself. Certainly not. And I know I'm, 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 I'm treading on dangerous ground a little bit because I never want to rep- misrepresent the Lord Jesus according to the way the Scriptures do. And sometimes we can go out of bounds and I could do that myself. So I want to be careful here. So what sounds to you unscriptural, if it is, I would ask you to, uh, to delete that from your mind and, and, and think it through on your own. But I think that Jesus ultimately has concluded with satisfaction. I I did what I had to do in Gethsemane. I was there at the olive press. I had all the pressures of what was coming down the road just converging on me in these moments. And I concluded, not my will, but thine be done. That's supreme. That the world might know that I love the Father. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Besides just dying for you and me and for His people, He went to the cross as a burnt offering to offer Himself wholly to God. Even though we were in the cup of trembling, He was willing to drink it to the bitter dregs. How much of that liquid in that cup were your sins? Have you ever thought of that? Does that not move you? Think of your adultery, your fornication, your lying, your stealing, etc., 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 All my sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on Him. All my sins were in that cup. The ingredients were there. Yours and mine. And He became a personal substitute bearing my sins and scoffing rude. In my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us here and could understand. And Lord, we recognize too that we are in territory that is very unfamiliar to us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to go behind the stage, as it were, and to see what Jesus was really contemplating. And Lord Jesus, we just want to salute you. We want to praise you and thank you for the agony, for the pain for the tears, for the sorrow that you were going through in Gethsemane. Hours before you would even be on the cross. Oh Lord Jesus, we don't appreciate you enough. And we humbly confess our coldness of hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you because of Gethsemane and as we go through the rest of the week, as we go to Golgotha and follow your footsteps, Lord, to to the hill where you endured the punishment in full and drank that cup to the bitterest dregs. Lord, receive our praise. And if anyone in this room, Lord, does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they cannot say that my sins were in the cup that Jesus was asking about, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to open up their eyes and that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to them in your goodness and kindness as we give you praise, worship, and thanks. 
In Jesus' precious and worthy name.